I hope you're enjoying the incredible fall we're having, unseasonably warm. All, some of the Ohio sports teams are doing very well, very enjoyable. Yeah. Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning. I'm Chris, and again, welcome, if you're new. And uh, today we're beginning a brand new set of talks called Life in the Spirit. And throughout the next four weeks, we want to go deeper in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like us to have some perspective on this. And to do that, I want to begin in the Old Testament. Now, we just finished a series from the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, where David was emerging as the king. If you read further into 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, you learn that David's son uh, Solomon followed him into kingship and led Israel into its most glorious period. But the second half of Solomon's life was defined by compromise. And by the end of his life, the nation was once again on a downward, slow trajectory. Over the next several hundred years, Israel was defined by spiritual apathy, materialism, and social injustice. Civil war split the nation in two. One kingdom to the north, Israel. The other kingdom to the south, Judea. During this time, many prophets came and went. They warned of judgment. They warned the people to return to a more robust relationship with the Lord. But the people continued to stray. And finally, both Israel and Judea were invaded by foreign armies and the people taken into exile. Judea was deported to Babylon around 600 B.C. Taken along with them was a priest turned prophet named Ezekiel. His message of judgment in the time before exile turned to a message of hope and restoration while in exile. One of those messages of hope came in the form of a vision and is recorded in Ezekiel 37. I'd like to read the first 14 verses of this remarkable chapter, this remarkable vision. If you want to follow it in the text in front of you, it's page 724. Let's stand for God's word. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. 
And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the gr- your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, for my friends this morning, I ask you for a grace that allows them to set aside whatever distractions or barriers there are to them hearing you and being addressed by you personally and directly this morning. Father, for my part, help me to love as you love and to Speak as you speak, to feel as you feel, Father, so that um, my that natural self could be completely taken away and not hindering at all whatever you want to do this morning in our lives and in the life of our church and in our families and friendships and in our marriages. Speak. Father, speak Holy Spirit to us. For Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. All right. So we read a pretty confusing, crazy, wild chapter there. I want to break it down into four parts so we can dig into it. One, what he saw, Ezekiel. Two, what he did. Three, what it meant to them. The exiles, his audience, for what it means to us. So number first one, verses, first point, verses one through three, what he saw. Ezekiel saw a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel was transported to this valley. Now I tried to picture what that might look like, and I had a, uh, a picture of it looking like Death Valley. How many of you have ever been to Death Valley? It's really quite a fascinating place. It is an incredibly beautiful desert. That's one thing that makes it unique. But the other thing that makes it unique is that it is extremely, incredibly dry. Maybe this valley was something like that. 
God placed Ezekiel in this virtual death valley to give him a gut-checked experience, to see reality as God saw it. Pictures conveyed what words on a piece of paper could never do. This floor of the valley was thick with human bones. Can you imagine what that scene looked like? I mean, it must have been gruesome. And what did the vision represent? It pictured the spiritual condition of the house of Israel. And dry bones communicated that this spiritual death did not happen yesterday. A lot of decomposition had taken place. Bones are all that remain when life has passed. Dry bones are not only dead, but they've been dead for a long time. One writer said it well. These bones had been out in the open blistering sun for a long time. And all the marrow and life sap had been drained from them. This is a picture of the exile's hopelessness and desperation. And in the middle of this valley, God asks Ezekiel a question. Can these bones live? Can extreme hopelessness be reversed? Can death hit rewind? What kind of question is this? Ezekiel must have wondered. Now we know, of course, that God knows all things. But God asked this question to Ezekiel in order to gauge what he's thinking and what he's feeling. Perhaps Ezekiel thought it was a trick question. And so he answers very safely. Oh, Lord God, you know. (laughs) Gotta love that, right? It's like the four-year-old giving the answer in Sunday school class of Jesus, knowing that most times that is the right answer. But all kidding aside, Ezekiel's answer recognizes that God is sovereign and that nothing is impossible with him. He does not want to interject his own desires or his own will, so he does not say yes. But neither is he willing to say no, that God cannot do it. And so what did he see? A valley of dry bones. Secondly, what did he do? Ezekiel speaks to those bones. God asked him to prophesy or to speak, to give God's word. To these bones. Seems like a ridiculous command, right? There's no live audience. What good could preaching to dry bones do? I gotta let you in on a little secret. Preaching to dry bones is actually an inside joke for pastors. (laughs) On On the Monday morning golf course, one pastor might say to another, Did those dry bones come alive this week? (laughs) Followed by a little chuckle. Now, I have to assure you that that level of cynicism we've never ever descended to here. And I I actually mean that. I mean that. But for Ezekiel's part, he soldiers forward. You can almost get a feel that, okay, God, I'll do this because you told me to do it. If we measure it by any human measurement, it just feels like wasted energy. 
But he speaks and something happens. First, he hears movement. There's a rattle of bones. Something like for some of you, sounds like when you wake up in the morning. But that rattling is a sign. Something is happening. Next, first he hears, then he sees, he watches. Bodies are coming back together. Ligaments tie the bones together at every joint. Muscles appear and are joined by tendons to the proper bones. He watches as thousands, maybe tens of thousands, complete human bodies begin to surround him. It sounds chaotic, but there is a rational order to it. One commentator said this. He said the sequence, the order involving bones, sinews, flesh, and skin reflects an understanding of anatomy available to anyone who had witnessed the slaughter of an animal, something their world was very familiar with. It also reverses the decomposition process. So this is amazing on its own. It's amazing on its own. But in verse 8, we learn that something is still missing. There was no breath in them. These were lifeless corpses. To steal a phrase, these are truly the walking dead. They're actually more dead than the show's zombies. So Ezekiel is told, therefore, to communicate more. In verse 9, look at verse 9. I think this is page 724, if I didn't say that earlier. In verse 9, he is to speak to. He is to petition the breath. Gee, that sounds weird. The breath is obviously a figure of speech. But for whom? Or for what? Here's a clue. If you look at verse 9, this breath is the same Hebrew word translated into English as winds. A little later in verse 9. So, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible and read breath in verse 9 and later winds in verse 9, it would be the same word. So, on God's command, Ezekiel petitions the breath or the winds on those who had once been dead. Now, why are there four winds? That is to picture the wind coming from every direction. North, south, east, west. The wind fills the valley. Now in verse 10, it says the breath came into them and they lived and stood and were an exceedingly great army. Now when it says great army, I don't know where your imagination goes. Mine goes to the oath breakers. Anybody remember the oath breakers are the dead men of the Dunharrow? That's from the Return of the King, the third book of Tolkien's trilogy. This, if you're not familiar with the story, this was an army of cursed ghosts chained in the mountain of the dead because they had broken an oath. And Aragorn, uh, they releases them and they help them win the final battle. Help Aragorn win the final battle. But if your imagination goes there, remember 
those were revived ghosts. In Ezekiel's vision, these are the dead made alive. And of course, Ezekiel's vision points to something real. This is a true graveyard revival. I love how one writer put it. As a result of Ezekiel's prophetic preaching, the graveyard comes to life. God has done the humanly unthinkable. The impossible has become a reality. What was once described as DOA, dead on arrival, has now become alive and vibrant with every pore of its being. So to recap so far, what did Ezekiel see in this death valley? Dry bones, death, hopelessness. What did he do? He communicated God's word and promises and witnessed the powerful result. So thirdly, now, what did that mean to the exiles who listened to Ezekiel? Look at verse 11. The writer tells us. Verse 11 describes how the people viewed their situation, how they viewed living in exile. First, they say, our bones are dried up. This described their spiritual deadness. They have been dead for a long time. Two, they say our hope is lost. They have no hope of ever returning home. No hope of ever becoming a nation again. Regaining their identity. And thirdly, they were cut off. Meaning they were dispersed. They were separated. And to this God says to them, I will resurrect you and I will restore you both to me and to the land and I will bring you back home. You shall know me experientially, not just with words. And then in verse 14, he says, I will place my spirit in you. Now, going back to what we said before, this word spirit is the same Hebrew word we saw earlier in verse 9. Translated as breath or as wind. Again, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible, you would not see three different words. It would all be the same word. Wind, breath, spirit. The Hebrew word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, try to pretend like I'm a Hebrew expert. I am not. The Hebrew word is spelled R-A-U-C-H. And according to J.I. Packer, a well-respected individual, this word means both the outbreathing of air from the human lungs and the stirring of the wind. Packer says that the picture here of this word is of air made to move vigorously, even violently. And the thought that the picture expresses is energy let loose. Executive force invading, power in exercise, life demonstrated by activity. See, we do not have good matches for this word in English. In English, we simply translate it spirit. And what Packer says is, therefore, we don't appreciate what it meant for people in Bible times. It meant to them simply put power in action. 
God is saying to the exiles, I am going to breathe power and life back into you. What did that mean to those who heard it? We have to try to put ourselves in their shoes. Can you imagine what that felt like? And what that meant to them? It meant, it had to have meant everything. Why? Because even after hundreds of years of rebellion, even after ignoring warning after warning, even after despising prophet after prophet, even after enduring judgment, God says to them, I am not done with you. I'm not finished with you. My goodness. Can you see how that rocked their world? Just like it rocks ours. And indeed, this promise came into a, a, a partial reality. After some time, the exiles did return to their land. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt their nation. This was all before Christ. There was a remarkable spiritual revival under the leadership of a man named Ezra. When the temple was finished, they had this massive celebration. Let me just read one verse from that party. Ezra 3, verse 11. It says, They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. This is a large thousands and thousands of people. This is their song. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so the people regained their identity for a time. But over the next several hundred years, that vision dwindled. (laughs) And if we roll up the tape, 450 years later, guess who comes onto the scene? Jesus comes onto the scene. And Herod the Great had already built his fabulous temple. And there were offerings and there were sacrifices. But the worship was play-acting. Dead ritualism was back. And Jesus... Uh, took full aim and full charge at those who were responsible for the worship and for the Mosaic law. And perhaps thinking of this passage in Ezekiel, Jesus said that on the inside, these leaders were full of dead bones. And so bringing now Jesus into it, it leads us to the final question, the one that matters now for us. What does it mean to you and me? How does this make any difference in our lives? And to answer that question, I simply want to look at a few passages now from the New Testament. Look at John 3, verses, verse 8. In John 3, verse 8, we see Jesus here, like Ezekiel, connecting the Spirit to wind. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Jesus is in conversation with a religious leader, someone named Nicodemus, someone who should have been familiar with the story of the dry bones from Ezekiel's day. And Jesus says the work of the Spirit is like the wind. We see its effect. We feel its coolness on our skin. But we don't know where it came from or where it is going next. And the wind is like the Holy Spirit. When the wind blows on an individual, it surprises them. It changes them. Others see the effect and wonder how it happened. In the same way the Holy Spirit is sovereign, we cannot control Him, um, we cannot see Him, nor always predict what He's going to do. Jesus said in the verse before this one, that we must be born anew, or born again, to enter the kingdom of God. The spiritual rebirth is initiated by the Spirit. New birth assumes that we're dead spiritually, that we are those dry bones. Our spiritual life without Christ is in a rapid state of decomposition. And some of you are here today. There's some of you here today that are here because you've been feeling that wind at your face. You're not sure where it came from. You're not sure where it will take you. At first, you may not have recognized that it was God, the breath of God, the Spirit working. It felt at first like a thirst or a hunger for something different, something more. This is what happened to me when I was an early teen. I felt an extreme thirst for something more. I wanted desperately to have meaning and purpose and direction in life. I wanted... I felt an overwhelming desire to have a life that mattered. That was a wind sweeping over me. I did not know at the time where it would take me. But it made me aware of how empty I was without God in my life. It made me aware of how holy and just God is and how I deserve judgment. It made me aware of how much I needed forgiveness. Though it took a while because I had a lot of baggage to unpack, it convinced me that God loved me and had a tremendous plan for my life. And that wind was no it. (laughs) That wind was a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. Power in action. Now, let's look at another passage. Turn just a few pages over. I'm sorry, look at Acts 2 verse 1. This will actually not be, it's page 909. I don't have a slide for this verse. In Acts 2 verse 1, let me set the stage for this passage. Jesus has now died and resurrected and ascended to the Father. He has instructed his disciples to wait in the upper room. Because he's going to fulfill a promise to clothe them with power from on high. Ten days later, that promise became a reality as they waited and prayed. 
It is the same promise that Ezekiel had given hundreds of years earlier. And on this day, 50 days after the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, the promise from Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 14 finds a much larger fulfillment. And that is that the church was given the Holy Spirit. Let me read this in Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, do you see the image of wind? Like a mighty rushing wind filling the house. Like the wind that came into the graveyard of Ezekiel's vision. That wind re-knit bones. And it re-knit bodies and put them into a new humanity, a new community, relationally connected to God and one another. This is a sovereign work of the Spirit that you cannot contain or control. This is the Holy Spirit power in action. Now, just stay right where you are. A little bit later, Peter speaks and he is interpreting For astonished onlookers, there were thousands in the crowd who saw this phenomena and could not make sense of it. So Peter interprets for them what's going on and he anchors this in another prophet. Here's what he says in verse 17. I'll just make a few comments. And in the last days, by last days, what he means is the church age. This is the present time that we live in, as opposed to the age of the first covenant, the first testament. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, which means to communicate God's word. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What is the thrust of this? In the old covenant, the spirit came in limited situations to a limited number of people. But now, in our age, the spirit will come into the heart of every Believer in Jesus, young, old, men, women, and every believer will have the power to communicate who God is to our world, to our generation. This is the power of the Spirit. Now, turn finally to Romans 8. And if you saw the initial slide, you'll remember that Romans 8 was actually where we were assigned to preach from. And I'm not just now beginning my message. I'm almost wrapping up here. I don't want to scare you. In the book of Romans, Paul is explaining the gospel. And when he gets to chapter 8, 
He explains how much the Holy Spirit is part of that gospel. Let me read verses 10 and 11. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life. Because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the Spirit actualizes the power of Christ in us. He makes Christ life accessible to us. The Spirit's function is the same as Ezekiel pictures. He gives life and vitality and it is energy let loose. He knits us back together as people and and then knits us back in together in community. The Holy Spirit makes the gospel effective in our lives. The Spirit also will resurrect us with the same power He used to raise Jesus. Your mortal body will be resurrected. Now, let's not underestimate that. The future resurrection is a powerful assurance with tremendous emotional residue. And that assurance cast a relentless ray of hope into everyday life, whether you are suffering or rejoicing or just trying to find the meaning in the mundane. Resurrection hope is powerful. And it's the Spirit's work. Listen, if the Spirit of Steve Jobs lived within me, think of what I could accomplish in business. If the spirit of Jane Austen lived in you, think of the books you could write. Or if the spirit of Robert Frost lived in you, think of the poems you could pen. If the spirit of LeBron James lived in you, think of the shots you could make or the dunks you could make. Christ opens up for us the ability to participate in the divine life. Not by changing our basic nature, we're still human, but by helping us share in his qualities. All of us have a physical DNA that predisposed you to the color of your hair, to how big your feet were, to how big you grew, and whether or not you had freckles. Christ in us is a spiritual DNA that predisposes us, if we will cooperate, to share in His character and the quality of our inner life. That's power. This is more than Christ being for you. This is more than Christ being with you. This is Christ in you. And the Holy Spirit's role, one of them, is to bring us into greater oneness with Jesus. His life flows into ours and ours into His. Now look at the next couple of verses. What is one outworking of this power? Paul says, Therefore, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, in light of this truth, 
You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. The Holy Spirit gives us power to resist temptation and overcome the things that we cannot overcome. Now see, this is where it really meets the road in our lives. Odds are you've come in here this morning struggling with some temptation. Your temptation is probably different than mine, and mine is different than yours, and it's probably different than the person sitting next to you. Is it jealousy? Uh, Maybe it's greed. Maybe you feel very insecure about your money and you find that you're obsessed and anxiety about it. Maybe you're trapped in a cycle of always comparing yourself. Maybe angry words and hateful feelings are ruining the relationships around you. Maybe sexual lust lurks inside of you with a cancerous effect. Maybe there's negative feelings you have tried to suppress on your own, but you can't. You see, by God's Spirit, Paul says, you can put to death the sinful nature, your natural self. The old self that makes you vulnerable to temptation. That is because the Holy Spirit has given you a new power inside. Christ in you that is remaking the new self. So you no longer have to follow those sinful urges as you did in the past. Think about this with me just for a moment. We have this call in our lives to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. But if we're not careful, when we hear those words, it can stir our pride. And we can say to ourselves, I I can do that. I can do that. The truth is you can't do that without the Spirit in you. If you've ever tasted the ugly outcome of self-indulgence, I sure have Uh, The call to deny self is a very appealing call. It actually shows up in many, um, many uh, systems of virtue and systems of ethics, the call to deny self. Many that are non-Christian. And that's because people learn over time that self-denial or delayed gratification is simply a better way to live. You are happier if you exercise and eat right and are in good shape. It's not a happy thing to be out of shape and to overindulge. And because this is true in our physical world, we are tempted to apply it without thinking about it to our spiritual world. As believers, it is possible, very possible, to focus on self-denial and to fight temptation completely on your own because it appeals to your pride. You like the idea of being a noble self to say, I did it. We can try that and completely abandon the motivation to be connected to Jesus and to want to please Jesus. 
We can leave the power of the Spirit completely out of it. Paul is saying we cannot take up our cross. We cannot deny ourselves and follow Jesus without the Spirit. So, finally, lastly, how do we do this? How do we do this? This will be a part of what we share the next couple of weeks. But Paul says here in a few verses earlier, our part is by setting our mind on the Spirit. We don't defeat sin by staying focused on it, by thinking about it all the time, by letting it dominate our thoughts, dreams, and emotions. Rather, as believers, we begin to focus our thoughts, emotions, and affections on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. The mind, Paul says, set on the Spirit is one of life and peace. Isn't that what we all want? Conversely, the mindset on the natural self is death. Maybe this illustration will help a little bit. I've been at war the last few years. I really have. Not just against temptations, not just against temptations, but I have been trying to defeat an invasion of moles into my highly prized yard, which is probably a little bit of selfish pride as well. Anybody ever seen a mole? Oh, they are. I think they're on the humor side of creation as far as God. Why did he create moles? It's humor, I think. I mean, they are the ugliest things. And I'm telling you, they are pesky. If unchecked, they will burrow pathways in your yard and they will wreck it. Grass will die. As a matter of fact, you can follow the path that they're burrowing by the dead grass evident on the surface. And I've used traps and I've used plastic poisonous worms to stop them and whatever I can. But you know what I've learned about moles? You know what the best defense is? A good offense. The best way to defeat moles and keep them out of my yard is not by focusing on them and hitting them when they get there. The best way to defeat them is by making my yard a whole lot less attractive. And the way you do that is by strengthening the root system through aeration, through fertilizer. You deal with the grubs, which is what, you know, those are the bugs underneath the ground that attract them. You get rid of them. You see, moles are like water. Water moves to the place of least resistance. So do moles. So if they do not go to my yard... They will go across the street to my neighbor's yard. (laughs) Then, of course, you have to work on neighbor relations, which that's a different topic and a different message. But do you see the point? Do you see the illustration? The way that we overcome temptation, the way that we overcome sin, is not by first focusing on the sin, but by first immersing ourselves in the life of the Spirit. And strengthening our root system. Learning to be filled with the Spirit. What did Paul say in Galatians 5? So then if you are led by the Spirit, what will happen to your life? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, the flesh is not just the body. The body is good. By flesh, he means means as well the mind. That natural bent towards putting self first. So... To wrap up, what have I said? How have I answered the question 
as far as what this means to us. I think I have said three things about the Holy Spirit this morning. One, the Spirit gives us access to the life of Christ. Gives us oneness with Christ. Secondly, the Spirit gives us assurance of a future resurrection. No small thing. That relentless hope transforms everything about us. Filling even the mundane with purpose and redeeming our suffering. And finally, the Spirit helps us to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful, prideful self. This morning, we have tried to understand the Holy Spirit through how the Scriptures speak of Him. And it is more word picture, right? It's more word picture than it is an abstract statement. He is the breath. He is the wind. He is spirit. And He is power in action. Now, let me leave you with this final statement. And I I hope that you'll write this down or remember it, reflect on it, pray about it and pray over it. This is what I believe based on what we've learned this morning. Because of the Holy Spirit, our lives are no longer defined or limited by past sins, by present weaknesses, or by future fears, but by God's power. Our lives are no longer defined by past sins, present weaknesses, our future fears, but by God's power. With a God-soaked imagination, ask yourself, what can I become? What can I do with my life? How can the quality of my relationships be built in light of this reality? Pray with me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let me just talk to you for a moment and ask you again to bring to the surface that Temptation that you find is unique to you, that you're struggling with. And I want to ask you to, in prayer, to bring this to God. And to ask Him for healing. To ask Him for the power of His Spirit to address that very thing that you're struggling with. Prayer is... Certainly one of the means by which we open up our hearts to the life of Christ flowing in us, again, actualized by the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you to bring that to Him. And to leave this morning with the understanding and the hope that the power of the Spirit can mend together your fragmented life, can mend together community and friendships and conflicts and can mend marriages and can mend relationships with children or parents 
This is power in action. Father, we bring to you this morning who we are. We bring to you all that we want to be. And Father, my prayer this morning is that with a God-soaked imagination, we might imagine ourselves as being able to do things or say things or become things that we never before dreamed or imagined. No longer simply defined, Father, or limited by past sins, our present weaknesses, or future fears. Father, help us to think what we could become, what you would want us to do. Father, we long for more of you. We're not satisfied. We want more of your spirit. Help us to walk with power and action. Lead us here as we turn our heart now to prayers and to songs and to an offering to demonstrate to you, Father, that we are open, that we want to be led by you, that we love you, that you're first in our lives. Holy Spirit, fill this place for Christ's glory. Amen.